Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Akeem's Dream Show. And today we're going to be talking about Monopoly Spice, salt, pepper, and how to corner the market. Salt and pepper is everywhere, isn't it? It's on every table. It's in every cupboard. It's in every diner. It's in every restaurant. Back in the 90s, it was coming through every speaker. Ah, mm, push it. Push it good. Ah, mm, push it. Pull, push it real good. Dun, dun. Salt. That's a little bit easier to understand, right? Salt's ubiquitous. It has a lot of benefits. We've been using it forever. Pepper, maybe a little bit less easy to understand. But salt and pepper, it's on every table. Why? And what lessons can we learn from salt and pepper to really help us with our venture, with our nonprofit, with our business, with our, nah, not, not the governments. If you have anything you're trying to accomplish, what are some lessons you can learn from salt and pepper as a spice and its effectiveness throughout the world? And anything that can be ubiquitous. And it, it, the thing that's interesting about salt and pepper is it's kind of, it's culturally agnostic. And what I mean by that is people aren't really uh, split on it across the board. You could be black, white, Indian, Asian. You could be rich, poor, middle class. You could be East, East from the Eastern hemisphere. You could be from the Western hemisphere. You'd be Christian. You could be Muslim. It doesn't matter. Everybody uses these spices, which is why the spice trade was one of the biggest markets in the world ever. And it really was responsible for cultural expansion and 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 really uh, the migration of people in ancient civilizations. But we're not going to get into that. Although those implications are very interesting. That's a rabbit hole for another day. I think we should start with salt. Why was salt so prevalent? Why is it so prevalent? Why is it so dominant as a spice? Think about monopolies. Monopolies have no competition. Pepper, I think we could argue, has some has some competition. But salt, pff, salt is the MJ of spices. Salt is the Tiger King of Netflix shows of spices. Ain't nobody messing with salt, bay. If you know, you know. <laughs> but salt, the first historical kind of record of salt came from 450 BC in China, where a gentleman named Yai Dun started making salt by boiling brine into an iron cast pot. And then he'd boil the brine and the water off and all that remained was salt. And that hasn't really changed to how it's made today. People who live anywhere near an ocean where there's salt water, just go out there with pails and you can do this. Put it on a stove or put it on a tray and let the sun make the water evaporate or you can heat off the water and you'll have salt left. That's kind of historically how salt's been process now you have himalayan salt which is found in the mountains or you have traditional like rock salt or salt uh, residue that goats will lick off the side of a cliff but that's a little bit harder to get and it's harder to uh, produce at scale unless you can find a big i've seen these videos where these uh himalayan salts are found these pink himalayan salts and they're found in the um the mountainside and it looks like a glacier like a pink glacier of a solid rock but it's not it's salt and it's huge. So that'd be better than finding gold in this day and age, in my opinion. And we'll get into that why in a second. So China, uh, that was kind of the first place to really manufacture salt, although salt had been around before then. China was the first kind of place to kind of produce it and use it and really cultivate it. And then it made its way out of China. And because of the Roman Empire, it really expanded, right? Anything that was associated with the Roman empires, I got to do a whole episode about the Romans, but they did a lot of cool stuff when it comes to innovation, when it came to spreading stuff. So you didn't want to be conquered by them. But if you were, and they were sympathetic to you, and they left you be, 
they brought you cool stuff like, hey, this is how you make salt. Anyways, the Romans spread salt around wherever they conquered. And the Romans, they valued salt so much that, like my friend Kyle Smith said in our episode together, Go Fit Yourself, he actually alluded to this. He said, the Romans used to get paid their weight in salt. So they had a salt salary. Now, if you caught that, that's a very, very interesting uh, semantic that has carried on to this day. See, Romans carried, cared so much about salt that they would rather get paid half their salary. You know, fuck the dollar. Give us some salt. <laughs> so if you ever hear the phrase, anybody worth their salt, that comes from the Romans being paid in salt. And salt, someone getting paid, uh, that, their way of saying salt back then was salarium. And that actually kind of gave way to the word today called salary. So if you were getting paid a salarium back then, that was the essentially the same way as being paid a salary. So salary is derivative of salarium, which is derivative of salt. So if someone says today, hey, the salary is $60,000 a year, you can say to them, how much of that is in salt? They might be like, uh, is this person? They might say, they won't say this out loud, but they'd be like, uh, what the fuck? We don't pay people in salt here. But historically, that actually was the case. And the word salad actually comes from salt as well. So after the Romans empire dissolved, salt was used through the Renaissance, through the medieval times by kings and monarchs and, and different civilizations, different empires as a bargaining chip. It was used as a way to tax. It was used as the, it was almost used like gold or any kind of very other, any other kind of valuable commodity. If the king caught you smuggling salt, they would lock your ass up. It was used to protect and to back currency. Now, that's kind of interesting to me because I think of when commodities are backing up currencies, I think of the gold standard where in the United States up until 1972, the whole economy of the United States was backed up on the gold standard, which was that every dollar in circulation had a gold, its value backed up in gold. So if the economy crashed, they could still use gold to trade. So back then, they actually subsidized part of their economy on the salt standard, saying we have salt reservoirs that can replace our pound, the British pound, if the economy in our empire was to ever fade. So if someone says today, hey, what are you backed up in? Well, you know, I got this house or someone says, oh, I got crypto. Oh, I got Bitcoin. Oh, I got Facebook stock. I might just say I got 100 pounds of salt. And they'd be like, uh, cool. But if they're really smart, they might be like, ah, I get it. Because salt is valuable. You can sell salt. You can use salt for a lot of different things. And guess what? If the world, and it sounds like it might go this way anyways, but if the world ends up going down the shitter, guess what? Fuck your crypto. Fuck your Ethereum. Whatever you got, I got actual real stuff that people are going to need. People are going to want salt when the world's going down the shitter. If that does happen knock on wood. But it was a valuable currency, right? The reasons why salt is so prominent and so popular is because number one, it tastes good, obviously, but it reflects the taste of protein in nature. If we were to hunt a deer and eat its meat, well, there's it's salty. It's a salty kind of texture. It's a salty meat. So salt in its raw form replaces that meat that we get from nature. It parallels well with the meat that we'd eat naturally. And we had been eating for hundreds of thousands of years before we actually were able to procure salt. Now, salt is also a preservative. 
if you ever notice this about salt, it pulls the moisture out of meat. So you could use it to dry meat. You could use it to store meat for a long time. And pulling the moisture out of meat is important because the moisture has the bacteria. And the bacteria is what makes meat rot. So if you wanted to make the meat last, you put the salt on it, a little bit of salt bay, and pulls the bacteria out, makes the meat last for as long as you'd like. It's a natural preservative. In other words, very, very valuable. If you wanted to live more than, I don't know, two months in the bush, you could cure your meats with salt and make that make that food last a little bit longer. In the modern context, you know, we know salt as valuable in the context of being an electrolyte, right? NaCl, if you remember your chemistry class, electrolyte salt, they that's essentially what Gatorade is. It's just liquid salt. It helps balance and it gives our nerves and muscles function because it helps with that electricity, that electric stimulation that's happening in your muscles. You lose that when you sweat, right? If you ever sweat and lick yourself, you'll notice it's very, very salty. So you're losing all that salt from your body when you sweat. So when you're drinking that Gatorade, you are getting that salt back. And then finally, it's part of our culture, right? Salt is a kind of a superstitious thing. In Europe, the belief that is if you spilt the salt, it's akin to having an evil omen. It's bad luck. I remember uh, the movie Dumb and Dumber when uh, Harry, played by Jim Carrey, spilt the salt at the diner and his buddy Lloyd goes, hey, Harry, you got to throw that over your shoulder, man. It's bad luck. And Harry goes, okay, fuck it. And he just tosses it. <laughs> and, like, and the guy goes, what the fuck? He just knocked the guy with a huge thing of salt. <laughs> oh, man, I got I could watch that once a year. Anyway, spilling the salt is bad luck. And uh, it, a lot of Europeans believe it goes all the way back to the painting, like the origin of the salt being bad luck if you spill it. It goes all the way back to the painting by Leonardo da Vinci in his painting called The Last Supper, where everyone is sitting with Jesus then the day before he's crucified. And they're sitting at that table. And if you look for Judas, which is one of Jesus's disciples who betrayed him, he actually, uh, Leonardo da Vinci actually has it painted at the Last Supper painting of Judas spilling the salt. He has knocked over the salt uh, cellar or the salt shaker. So if Judas does that, if you if you spill the salt, that means you're going to betray Jesus tomorrow. So don't do it. <laughs> so don't be salty. And as my boss used to say, let's go back to the salt mines and discuss pepper, black pepper or peppercorns, as it's called in India. They, pepper originated in Kerala, India, which has the habitat and the climate to really grow the peppercorns. And they were growing it there for about 4,000 years, and they shipped it out to Southeast Asia. And in India, pepper, peppercorns, it was known as black gold, progressing out of the India and Southeast Asia cultures. Obviously, everything got filtered through the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. And ancient Greeks and ancient Romans actually associated black pepper for some reason with a higher sperm count, increased semen, and reduced phlegm. So no more, so no more uh, snot and more semen. They were all about that back then. During the Renaissance, pepper was so valuable in the UK that it was used as the gold standard which all other spices were measured against. In Germany, they had something called peppercorn rent, where if you didn't have the money, you could pay your whole rent with peppercorns. 
That's pretty cool. Now, pepper wasn't as dominant as salt was historically. It had that rise up into kind of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and then it kind of took a back seat to other spices like cumin and turmeric and all these other spices that were kind of popping up. But during the Enlightenment, French cuisine really picked it up, and they decided to reintroduce pepper as the predominant spice. And a lot of the French chefs were romantic about the idea of having peppercorn rise to its previous dominance and its previous allure that it had with the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans and Indians and Southeast Asians. So they decided to bring it back into a lot of the cooking that was found in French cuisine during the Enlightenment. And it raised it to a level of popularity that was on the level of salt. And because French culinary and French cuisine is upstream of modern cuisine and modern cooking, it's hard to make the argument that no food or no culinary or no genre, no genre of food in the world is not influenced by French cuisine, specifically the French cuisine that came out of the Enlightenment in the 1800s and the 1700s. That's kind of the backbone and the basis of modern cooking is the French cuisine. They brought pepper on, therefore, it influenced every other kind of culinary area of the world. And it rose to a, a level of prominence again that allowed it to be next to the almighty and powerful salt. So that was kind of its rise back to power. It had a lot to do with the French cuisine and the Enlightenment and the influence that French cuisine had over the rest of the world. So what can we learn from salt and pepper? Well, there's a few tenets here that we can take away. You got to be able to be flexible, be useful in all applications and settings, be multidimensional, right? Be able to bundle yourself with other resources and things and make sure whatever you're doing, above all, that the Romans love it. Because if the Romans love it, then it's a, it's a good shot that it will stand the test of times. Because it sounds like whatever the Romans were into, we seem to be carrying on to this day. And that being said, I think that kind of uh, scratches my itch of curiosity that I had on this subject. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Akeem's Dream Show. I can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you so much for checking it out. Please share, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I will see you next week for another episode. Peace.